You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus, who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and modeling our psychic prison towns on old sitcoms. This is season four, episode seven, WandaVision, Love Persevering. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. It's a beautiful day for recording a podcast. Inside. Yeah, we are watching, uh, (laughs) right. And today we are talking about a show that always seems to have beautiful weather, no matter whatever episode you're in. It never rains in Westview. You're right. Westview has perfect weather. Which was particularly nice considering this show came out in, what was it, January January, this year when it was crummy, when we were in the uh, height of another wave of pandemic. And it was really nice to escape back into this nostalgic, uh, meta, complicated, well-textured show of WandaVision that I was not expecting to enjoy at all, especially since I don't like early 50s and 60s sitcoms. Yeah, I remember you telling me that you weren't a huge it. fan. And I said, no, you got to push through to the after the first couple episodes, everything changes. And then I could rewatch it now and appreciate that. But I think the the fact that we were watching and escaping into WandaVision is kind of a, a meta concept in itself because we were experiencing nostalgia and escapism during the awful months uh, earlier this year of the COVID pandemic. And guess what this show is about? Escaping your trauma through nostalgia, along with a lot of, <laughs> as we've called it, you know, grief and love. And as we've titled the episode, love persevering, that wonderful line from Vision. Yes. And well delivered by Paul Bettany. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But first, do you want to give us our scripture quote today? Our scripture quotation for today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 32 through 37. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from Vision in WandaVision episode number eight. This is during one of the flashbacks uh, after the events of the Avengers Age of Ultron when Wanda is grieving her brother Pietra's death. Vision says, I've always been alone, so I don't feel the lack. It's all I've ever known. I've never experienced loss because I've never had a loved one to lose. But what is grief, if not love, persevering? So we've already had an episode on Marvel and grief when we did Avengers Endgame on grief. That was actually one of the core ideas that helped launch this podcast. And to return to it again in WandaVision is something spectacular because I think it's able to explore important parts of our humanity and our shared human experience, particularly in an important time where we're all experiencing lots of grief and trauma, but through the lens of superheroes. And um, it's kind of like, like a sneaky, sneaky evangelism in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when I watched the episode with the vision quotation, I just said, 
And I kept seeing on social media, oh, what an amazing way of talking about grief. And, and I kept thinking to myself, yeah, that's what I preach at every funeral. <laughs> exactly. And that John quotation is often read at funerals is one of the core, you know, sort of sermon texts. If I had to preach one funeral sermon for the rest of my life, it would be Jesus weeps at the tomb of his friend. The way that this quotation from the Gospel of John lines up so well with WandaVision kind of cracks me mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. how the um, the folks that are there grieving with Mary and her sister Martha say, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's almost like they they think that Jesus is the superhero who has some sort of superpowers that could save his friend who had died, even though Jesus wasn't even there. Now, of course, mm -hmm. Jesus does long distance healings that we know, but. Um, and he was delaying so that they could see his power. I think well, is also yeah, part of that. Yeah. Okay, There's definitely but... some editorial in, in John's <laughs> gospel about why he why he stayed where he was. Uh, but when, when we get to WandaVision, there's scenes with uh, Hayward, the director of Sword, where where he's almost taunting her about her power, and mm. and um, and people seem to think that she has the power to bring Vision back. Like he's he's hoping that she might have some power to bring Vision back. Um, and then Agatha is hoping that she can, that Wanda, if by working through her grief, gets to a point where she can take Wanda's power and, and mm -hmm. steal that power. And she can't do it until Wanda is able to give it up. But Wanda is a really powerful superhero. She, she's, I mean, you look at her in uh, Endgame, she goes toe to toe with Thanos. Absolutely. So she's grieving the, you know, Vision's death. She wakes up after being snapped out of existence and she had just witnessed uh, Thanos killing Vision. And she wakes up, she's snapped back into existence and he's, his body is gone. And so we learn later that she goes to seek out the body and, and hey, that's when Hayward kind of goads her and she creates this false reality in order to escape. And so if we're looking at this through the lens of grief, those early episodes are very much the denial and isolation parts where she is so hurt. Um, she's having re-experiencing trauma on top of the trauma of losing her brother earlier than that, losing both her parents. Now she's lost the love of her life and she wants to create, she accidentally unconsciously creates this entire world of Westview, New Jersey, a perfected version of it in a way that she's able to gain control over it. That's something that I noticed later in the series when they're when she and Vision are in a flashback watching Malcolm in the Middle. And she says, you know, we know Hal's not injured because it's not that kind of a show. Sitcoms have a predictable pattern. They have rules to them. And so those early episodes, which are the fun family sitcoms, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke, we know how those go, that the, the shenanigans are lighthearted, that no one's going to get hurt. And what a place to escape into a place that in the end, it ends up all right. And the couple loves each other and there's no disagreements and everything is fine and tied up by the end of the episode. Yeah. In 22 minutes, we go from problem to solution mm -hmm. every time. Uh, and it's funny, when it, it, one of the flashbacks, they they define shenanigans for their Sokovian, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember if it's her or Pietro that says it, but they they say, or maybe the mom says it, you know, shenanigans is is problem, but silly more than scary. Yes, silly, a silly problem and that they know it's going to be taken care of. Yeah, so when we see Wanda after exiting the S.W.O.R.D. headquarters where she had seen Vision's 
dismembered body. Uh, it's it's really visceral. She goes to where uh, she has this. Is it a deed for a house or, yeah, a, or which, a plot of land? They don't give you fancy calligraphied calligraphized deeds when you buy a house, <laughs> let alone an empty plot of land in New Jersey. Where she she kneels down in this framework of a house. It's not a ruin, it's just a foundation. And it's not even a foundation because there's grass in it. And she starts to cry. And then all of a sudden, the energy of the hex just blasts out of her. I I wonder if she had remained in that spot and just kept crying, if she would have broken through to to another level of, of... of that grieving process. But instead that, that weeping is arrested by the creation of the hex and the creation of this fantasy world that she places herself in. That's right. And that's the question that later in the episode, later in the series, Monica will ask um, Monica, the daughter of Maria Rambo, who's the good friend of Carol Danvers, AKA Captain Marvel, who has grown up, lost her mother to cancer while she was snapped away and she comes back and she's working for sword and when she confronts wanda she says the worst thing has already happened to her she's lost her mother and she says i can't undo it i can't undo this pain anymore and i don't think i want to because it's my truth and monica throughout the series will provide this kind of alternate way of going through grief if if wanda had just stayed there with the deed in her hand, with the little heart that says a place to grow old from her love, from vision. And if she had just wept there and grieved, it would have looked very different. But instead of doing that, going through the grief um, un, you know, she, and speaking her truth, as will be called throughout the series, Wanda creates this alternate reality. And in doing so, kind of traps this entire town in her fantasy. Instead of going through it, she chooses to go back. Yeah, and and we I want to just pause for just a second and and talk about grieving as a disclaimer. Mm. We're going to talk about the way WandaVision handles this. We don't want that to be seen as a prescriptive way of dealing with grief that mm-hmm. there are so many ways to grieve. That's what we talked about in the Avengers Endgame episode in season 2. We're not going to say to somebody that here are the steps that you have to go through and then when you're done with those steps, tra la la no more grief. <laughs> That's not how this yeah. works. You know, grieving continues and persists and changes and morphs and will come up and and nip at your heels and mm-hmm. smother you 10 years after you thought you were at a certain point where it wasn't going to do that anymore. So mm-hmm. this TV show obviously has some interesting layers to it, but it's also nine episodes of a television show that's trying to tell a particular story. So we're looking at grief through this particular lens, not thinking about it as a universal um, prescription. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, if, if we mention the stages of grief as sort of coming up in themes, we, we know that those are not, like you said, a prescription or a predetermined path that you follow through in a logical easy to track order um, with a linear progression. It is, it can be cyclic. And I also think one of the things about, there's no wrong way to grieve. And yet WandaVision, one of the things it explores is that sometimes our pain can overflow and impact others. And this is where you had a really excellent bit from a book as you often do that I was wondering (laughs) if you could share with us. I've been reading this book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma 
Menachem. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the last name right, Menachem. He is a therapist. He deals with the body and how trauma is held actually in our physical selves, not just in our minds, but actually in our bodies and in our, and in our lizard brains, that uh, primitive part of our mind where we have our flight, fight, freeze response, right? And uh, he talks about the concepts of clean and dirty pain. Uh, clean pain, he says, is pain that mends and can build your capacity for growth. It's the pain you experience when you know exactly what you need to say or do when you really, really don't want to say or do it and when you do it anyway. It's also the pain you experience when you have no idea what to do, when you're scared or worried about what might happen or when you step forward into the unknown anyway with honesty and vulnerability. Experiencing clean pain enables us to engage our integrity and tap into our body's inherent resilience and coherence in a way that dirty pain does not. Paradoxically, only by walking into our pain or discomfort, experiencing it, moving through it, metabolizing it, can we grow. That's how the human body works. And he finishes that with clean pain hurts like hell. And then you move. I move down at the page a little bit, and he contrasts that with dirty pain. Dirty pain is the pain of avoidance, blame, and denial. When people respond from their most wounded parts, become cruel or violent, or physically and emotionally run away, they experience dirty pain. They also create more of it for themselves and for others. So this concept of dirty pain is the pain that you aren't dealing with. And it stays with you and then it spills over from you into other people. And it made me think of the final episode of WandaVision when Agatha cuts the strings of the meat puppets Ugh. Uh, horrible of the people image. in the town, yeah. you know, with Deborah Jo Rupp from that 70s show and uh, the, the woman that plays Anya on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, you know, a few others. Agnes cuts the strings and they tell Wanda that they feel her pain. Mm -hmm. They dream her nightmares. And then one of them says, your grief is poisoning us. Ugh. And that is such a clear presentation of that concept of dirty pain where Wanda has literally captured other people into her fantasy so that she can avoid the pain that she's feeling. And what the series basically tells us is that there's not really any way to do that. Even inside the fantasy world, Wanda still encounters pain and the pain of grief. And we see that specifically in the on a very special episode, episode number five, where uh, the boys have a dog. The eighties episode. Right. And that's, that's also the first time we get to hear Monica's perspective as someone who's escaped from the hex. And again, she's, she feels, you know, she felt pain first of all, upon enter, um, upon entering. And she said, there was this feeling keeping me down this hopeless feeling like drowning. It was grief and later describes it, although it's off camera as a violation being trapped in that hex. And so when we get this episode, a very special episode, you know, because so many of those 80s sitcoms would occasionally deal with heavier topics and they would be kind of framed in this, a very special episode of, you know, family full house ties. or family yeah. ties. Wanda's children adopt a dog briefly 
And then they find the dog. Uh, Agnes has found it dead behind her azalea bushes, although we learn later she killed it. She killed it. it. Oh, Oh. Agatha. It was Agatha all along. It was Agatha all along. And (laughs) Wanda is forced to explain to her children something that she herself hasn't really been able to deal with. It's a very kind of classic case of do as I say, not as I do. And she says to the boys, um, because they have the ability to age themselves up as is convenient in the show. She says, the urge to run from this feeling is powerful, I know. And they're saying to her, it's too powerful. You can fix anything, mom. Fix the dead. Talking about the dog. Jesus. Like Jesus, yeah. 11. Why could this man who re- who restored sight to the blind not not keep this man from dying? And Wanda says back to them, "I'm trying to tell you that there are rules in life. We can't rush aging just because it's convenient, and we can't reverse death, no matter how sad it makes us." Okay, some things are forever. So she's actually speaking a, a truth there, as Monica would say that this is my truth, but she's not ready to face it herself. And, and so Wanda has this moment with her boys and then we have the, the funny Halloween episode and then we have the depression episode uh, mm-hmm. where the breaking the fourth wall when she's sitting there talking to somebody off camera uh, where she says, I- I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I don't understand what's happening, uh, why it all falls apart, why I can't fix it. She, she's telling to the boys, you know, um, I have no idea what's going on. I am, I'm completely lost. Mm -hmm. And at this point, she's actually finally coming towards a place of truth for herself because yeah, she's grieving and she's lost compared to the earlier episodes where she says, this is, you know, don't worry, darling, I have everything under control. And there is a bit of a, a meta thing in the progression of sitcoms going from the very predictable 50s and 60s ones to the more emotional 80s ones. And now we're in the early 2000s, right, with breaking the fourth wall. Um, and this is also this episode is also the one that has the antidepressant commercial in <laughs> yeah. WandaVision. Yes. These show, you know, each episode has a kind of in-universe commercial with the same actors that in a way that kind of it's very upsetting at first because they're slightly sinister and in this one it's the unique it's the antidepressant nexus and it says a unique antidepressant that works to anchor you back to your reality or the reality of your choice so it's speaking almost directly to wanda and says the kind of tagline at the end is because the world doesn't revolve around you or does it And you'll notice one of the side effects of taking this, you know, in universe antidepressant is speaking your truth, feeling your feelings, all the things that Wanda (laughs) hasn't been doing. I also noticed she's taking the pills in this episode that bot she shakes them out into her hand in the kitchen. It's, it's the Nexus pills. Oh, yeah. So she is trying, you know, subconsciously or actually trying to begin to move forward in this low point where she says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then she starts to kind of break down. This is like a hinge point in the show where she begins to move forward. Yeah. And, and it, at that point, Agatha takes the boys at this. And in this moment, we're going, Oh, she's the best friend. This is great. You know, she's giving mm-hmm. Wanda a mental health day. Um, then of course we, we find out that she's a witch and bad. She's a witch. Burn her. Not a witch. Sorry. <laughs> she turned me into a For her own machination, she wants Wanda's power. She decides that the best way to get Wanda's power is to help Wanda actually move through her grief. So it's self-serving on, on Agatha's mm-hmm. part, but she actually does help her. Uh, and she says, yeah. uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, she says um, in the episode previously on, they 
go back and they look at bits of, of uh, mm-hmm. Wanda's past. She says, I tried to be gentle to nudge you awake from this ridiculous fantasy, but you'd rather fall apart than face your truth. Yes, here we go with the truth again. Agatha says to Wanda, the only way forward is back. Mm -hmm. In other words, you need to revisit pieces of your past. Look at the trauma that you have buried deep within you. And only by facing that trauma... Uh, are you going to be able to move forward and turn that dirty pain into clean pain? Right. And we get this weird and wonderful tour through Wanda's life, beginning with a, a not so well off, you know, kind of as Agatha will call it, Cold War aesthetic uh, uh-huh. family living in Sokovia who gather at night to have TV night to practice their English and watch the sitcoms on the DVDs that their father sells. And you see that the seeds are planted here, right? She, the one that Wanda requests is the Dick Van Dyke show. It's where they talk about shenanigans, how everything's okay. And then the bomb hits and destroys their apartment. The kids escape and are able to go under the bed and hide there for two days while this bomb, which clearly says Stark Industries, um, has that slow beeping red light that we see early, you know, earlier in the show in some of those fake commercials, there's that beat, that sort of sinister pulsing red light. And they sit there for two days waiting, essentially waiting for it to go off while knowing that their parents are dead. And this being the, one of the nuggets of Wanda's pain, the kind of core incident in her life. I guess if we were talking about inside out, it would be a core memory with sad and maybe yeah. mad a little bit mixed in. Yeah, fear. That, fear that yeah. Sh- and fear, all, all of the emotions all of the above, yeah. um, fixed in her in her psyche. And Agatha is able to kind of, sorry, Agnes, I don't, the Catherine Hahn's character, the witch. The inimitable Catherine Hahn, who wonderful I have in yet this. to see anything with her in it where I don't immediately love her. I think she, uh, yeah, she's having a real power moment these days and yeah. I'm, I'm all for it, but she's trying to figure out, you know, the source of Wanda's power. And she's like, well, maybe you, you didn't, you didn't allow the bomb to be set off, but that doesn't explain how strong you are. So then they move forward to after Wanda's become radicalized, she joins Hydra and she volunteers herself for this experiment. Um, mm-hmm. And she's still moving through that grief in a, in a dirty way, I guess, is to use the the phrase from my grandmother's hands. She's joining this organization that would hurt others. Do you think that Agatha's right about her actually being a witch? Or do you think her power com- comes completely from the Mind Stone? Because it's not clear. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Does she have enough? I don't know exactly the mythology of the Scarlet Witch. I don't that- either. Like they say yeah. she's she's not born she's forged right so maybe yeah I don't well, know so so it's not clear whether or not that she actually was influencing the bomb not to explode right. just not sort of in a Harry Potter pre being taught how to do magic way yeah yeah either um, way it's the situation completely out of her control and yeah. what do we see later on when she feels comfort in controlling her environment and this was a moment where everything was out of control. Even if she was subconsciously turning off the bomb, she didn't know it. She was just yeah. fearful for her life. Yeah. And then, so she has the moment with the mind stone, her powers are unlocked. And then we, the next scene that they go to is the scene at the Avengers compound mm. on uh, where she and vision are sitting on the bed, watching Malcolm in the middle. And you mentioned this before um, vision saying, uh, 
it is funny because of the grievous injury the man just suffered when the uh, when the porch roof falls on Brian Cranston. And Wanda says, no, he's not really injured. And Vision, Vision says, ah, how can you be certain? And then that's when Wanda says, it's not that kind of show. So she has these shows are the scaffolding for her for her fantasy, but also in, in the life that she wants to live. She wants that predictability. She wants the to know what type of show she's in so yeah. that she can feel safe and know that she doesn't really have to face that trauma that is actually at the core of herself at this moment. Right. Cause this is in the aftermath of her brother's death and, and vision is gently reaching out to her. And, and she says to him, what makes you think that talking about it would bring me comfort? The only thing that would bring me comfort is seeing him again. So she's talking to vision about her brother. And yet as us viewers watching this, knowing that she has brought herself comfort by bringing back vision after he has died, we see that she's she wants she's has the power now to do that to bring back her the love of her life um and this is where you know she exp- she expresses her grief as she says it's just like this wave washing over me again and again it knocks me down and when i try to stand up it just comes for me again and i can't it's going to drown me feeling overwhelmed and swamped and just completely overwhelmed by this pain that she has experienced at the death of her brother yeah, and what a what an amazing bit of writing and mm-hmm. acting. I think that scene is so well acted between uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. Mm-hmm. It's very tender. And Vision, he's he he says he says, "Oh, I don't mean to intrude, but no, I really do mean to intrude." <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and he you comes see, like, in hints of their he, future relationship. Yeah, there, he's so tender with her though, and so gentle. And I, I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful moment between them and shows that they have this connection. And it's not just the fact that they're both being uh, animated by the Mind Stone. And that's when Vision says, um, it's not going to drown you. No, it, it won't drown you. And, and Wanda says, well, how do you know? And Vision says, well, because it can't all be sorrow, can it? I've always been alone, so I don't feel the lack. And this is where Vision recognizes that in order to grieve, you have to love. And in order mm-hmm. to love, you have to feel, you have to risk vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And vulnerability leads to pain. But without that risk of pain, there is no way to love. And as he says, grief is love persevering. And we recognize that our love that persists, even when somebody is gone, means that that person is not really gone because love is a reciprocal relationship and love is something that happens within the greater realm of God's love. Our love is a piece of the love of God and the love of God does not vanish. First Corinthians 13, the the famous passage about love says that love never ends. And it also says that right now we see in a mirror dimly, we don't know Mm -hmm what it looks like on the other side. We, um, but when we do get there, we will see face to face. We will be known. Uh, f- we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. So the good news in that is that God knows us fully, even if we don't know fully yet. And a lot of our grieving has to do with the fact that we're holding one end of a rope and the loved one who's died is holding the other one, but we can't see the other end. You know, and we, we're kind of tugging on it, but we can't get there. And that's what Wanda kind of 
I think recognizes through this, these scenes where she's looking back at these events in her life. Uh, and then when she comes back to the present in the finale and recognizes the pain that she's causing these people, she realizes what she has to do. And that's where her hero moment begins. And she turns that, that dirty pain that has essentially enslaved an entire town into a clean pain by letting it go. And we have those two really beautiful scenes, the one where she and um, Vision put their boys to bed and say, you know, family is forever, mm-hmm. kiss them on the forehead. And then when the two of them say goodbye, she says to, to Vision, you are my sadness and my hope, but mostly you're my love. And he reflects back, I've been a voice with no body when he was Jarvis, a body, but not human, but now a memory made real. Who knows what I might be next? We have said goodbye before, so it stands to reason. And she says, we'll say hello again. So it seems like she moves to this place of acceptance as she lets go of this fantasy. And it kind of all dissolves the sons that she has had in this in this strange world, dissolve the house, all the Westview, New Jersey goes back to its kind of depressing state. All the people are released. She's still made to face the consequences of her actions as she does that kind of walk of shame through the town square and people are staring at her and she has one last conversation with Monica and then she flies off you think to a place of grief of clean pain and acceptance we would hope until we get the post post credit scene reading the dark hold uh. <laughs> and do you, so is she doing that to discover her powers to find her sons again as they they kind of are calling to her i prefer to think of this series as a uh, as something complete in itself with, yeah, maybe some threads, maybe some threads to other stuff. Like we might see white vision again. We might see, we'll see Monica Rambo again. I'm sure. Oh yeah. Um, we uh, better. <laughs> yeah, we better. She's awesome. I hope we see Jimmy Woo again. Cause he's, oh, just he's the also best. awesome. <laughs> We're not really talking about him here, but he's great. Um, and we've already seen him in Ant-Man. So yeah, you, you'd mentioned the, when they're putting the boys to bed and we know as audience members. And we know that, that Wanda and vision know that they're not going to see them again, that there's this poignancy, there's this melancholy feel in the air, but it's, and it's sad, but it's not devastating. We know that in this moment, when she loses the boys this time, it's not going to destroy her. She's not going to fall back into that place where she recreates the hex. And so she has make, made some strides forward in this grieving process. And now she's reading the dark hole. Maybe she's, the, yeah. you know, going back through another cycle and that's, that's what happens. Or forward in a different way, you know, still seeking her sons, but using this Scarlet Witch power, which may or may not be, you know, world destroying. Who knows? We'll find out. Yeah. And she says in the, the scene with the boys, she says, the family is forever. We can never leave each other, even if we tried. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's, there's this idea that, yeah, of course, her boys are inside of her. She She'll remember them. Everything that happened in the hex was real for her. Um, and even though it was created as an avoidance, as a way to keep herself from feeling the pain of Vision's loss, in the end, it also is the avenue toward, for her healing and for her facing the pain that she's been undergoing really ever since her parents died. Why don't we finish by just circling back to Jesus? Always a good Oh, idea. A good choice. When we, when Jesus goes to Bethany 
to go to the grave of his friend. And Lazarus is one of the only people that is called Jesus's friend Hmm. in the gospel. The one whom you love has died is what the, the sisters send in their, in their message to Jesus. And so he goes and he meets with Martha and he meets with Mary and they both say the same either accusation or statement of faith or both. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he weeps. And this is the moment where the people are confused because wait, he, he's this all this powerful person. Why, why, why is he crying? And then we know what he does next, which is bring Lazarus back to life. So the question then is, why is he weeping? Well, he's weeping because his friend died. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what happens next. This is, this is an intensely human moment for Jesus where he is feeling grief over the death of his friend. It's not more complicated than that. Right. You can have all, all the power in the world, all of the power in creation and still be moved to tears at something sad that has happened. And I, and I do think that what an amazing witness to the way God interacts with creation, that God can weep when we are weeping. And even though we know that's not the end of the story, that is the moment that he's in, in that, at that time. And then he, he tells Lazarus to come out of the tomb and he does. And we know that Lazarus is going to die again. And still that's not the end of the story either because of the power of the resurrection, where as uh, the letter to the Romans says, uh, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord, not even death. And that gives us permission to be people of faith who believe in that ultimate good ending in the good news and yet still feel our feelings when we experience something sad. And that is, you know, that grief is our love tempered by loss. That is our love persevering. This episode on our Ask Us Anything we're asking ourselves a question because it's my ultimate question. Yeah. This is one that we've touched on way long ago in season one in our nerd cannons episode, Uh, but we thought we'd, we'd expound a little bit more today. The question is when you read, how would you rank the importance of these four elements, world building, character, plot, and quality of writing? And I love to ask this question and explore it because I don't think it's a conscious choice, but I think we all have different ways of loving and engaging with stories. And sometimes when I have disagreements with my friends about the books we love, it helps me to to think about this, about what I value, what my friends value, to realize why we might be disagreeing on the quality of a certain book. Um, I think Adam and I have different rankings and that might explain our love for or disdain for certain types of literature or maybe fan fiction, which is where (laughs) this question came up last time. So for me, I'll answer first. Go for it. The most, again, it's not conscious. It's just what I've happened to be drawn to over time when I read. Character is the most important thing. Uh, character is what draws me in, what keeps me interested, what really activates my imagination. That is followed by world building because I think a really well-built world kind of almost becomes a character. And I like feeling the texture of the world. I like entering into the world, the ultimate escapism. Then I guess plot, plot would be fine. 
Uh, plot's really important. You don't want to read a, a boring book. And yet I kind of love boring books if they have compelling characters and worlds. And then finally, for me, quality of writing, despite being a lover of good prose, if it's not actively distracting, it's not going to bother me that much. I can put up with a lot of crummy writing as long as the characters are compelling and the world building is good. So what about you, Adam? Uh, so I think our rankings are pretty close, except for the flip-flopping of one and four. Because for me, quality of writing is number one. Quality of writing is head and shoulders above the other three. Wow. I want to read good writing. I celebrate really, really wonderful writing. We've talked about Patrick Rothfuss, N.K. Jemisin, mm -hmm. uh, my, some of my favorite current writers. Um, we've talked about Becky Chambers a lot recently because we're both kind of on a Becky Chambers kick. I think yeah. she's a, a lovely writer. I, I, I think she can really turn a phrase well. Um, I love Tolkien's writing. Uh, I know mm -hmm. not everybody likes that flowery pages and pages of description, but I think that his prose is just so beautiful um, that it gets me and, 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 I, and I love it. So quality of writing mm. is number one for me, uh, followed by character. And I think they go hand in hand because I think characters are, when they're well-written, you know, and the quality of the writing is there, they're going to make the characters more engaging or can. The quality of writing can help mm -hmm. with the character. Mm -hmm. But character development is really important, um, which then leads into um, to uh, plot and world building, kind of three and four. And they could probably be flip, flipped around. Um, uh, the plot, a book definitely needs a plot, obviously. But then we have a book, we talked about Becky, again, Becky Chambers. My favorite one of her books, which is a record of a spaceborne few, doesn't really have a big overarching plot it's yeah it's just people it's living their lives people living their lives but it's so beautiful that mm -hmm. i didn't mind that there wasn't a huge overarching plot so quality of writing character plot world building is mm. probably my order maybe world building and plot could be flipped around so i'm curious to hear from all of you dear constant listeners where are these elements for you do you have an additional element that i'm missing that i can interrogate people about next time i get into disagreement about literature what for you really draws you into a work and what's important to you? So again, those uh, those elements are world building, character, plot, and quality of writing. And we'll be right back with a lot of Harry Potter. A lot of Harry Potter. This time on the podcast, we're reading chapters 28 through 33. That was my idea. I'm so sorry, but we're gearing up for the end of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 28, The Missing Mirror. The trio arrive in Death Eater-occupied Hogsmeade, and they're cornered until Aberforth Dumbledore, the barman of the Hogshead, comes to the rescue. Turns out he's the one who sent Dobby in to Malfoy Manor to help, but he's pretty jaded and ready to throw in the towel. The whole story about Ariana comes out, how childhood trauma led to her suppressing her magic, how an outburst killed her mother, and how she died in the three-way fight among Grindelwald and the brothers Dumbledore. Harry's not giving up, so Aberforth opens an undiscovered secret passage into Hogwarts and outsteps Neville Longbottom. Chapter 29, The Lost Diadem. Things have been 
bad at Hogwarts. Students tortured and forced to torture, teaching the dark arts instead of defense against them. Members of Dumbledore's army are hiding out in the Room of Requirement with Neville as their chief. It's a who's who of secondary characters from across the seven Harry Potter books, and more come through from the Hogshead at the call to fight. But that's not why Harry's there, much to the disappointment of all. Luna brings Harry to Ravenclaw Tower to get a look at what Rowena's lost diadem looks like. Once there, he runs into Electo Caro, who calls the Dark Lord. Chapter 30, The Sacking of Severus Snape. Luna and a timely Professor McGonagall take care of the Caros. Then McGonagall calls the other heads of house, and they duel Snape, who flees the castle. Everything is happening fast now, and the fight is coming sooner than anyone expected, even Voldemort, who is now standing at the gates of a very well-protected Hogwarts. Chapter 31, The Battle of Hogwarts. The fight commences offstage as Harry searches for the lost diadem. After some ghostly sleuthing, he realizes he has held it before in the Room of Requirement when it is transformed into what Malfoy calls the Room of Hidden Things. He rejoins Ron and Hermione, who have destroyed Hufflepuff's cup with a basilisk fang. The Death Eaters are laying siege to the castle, but all is quiet in the Room of Requirement, at least until Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle show up. The latter two have leveled up into full-fledged Death Eaters, and Crab casts a fiend fire spell. The cursed fire burns up all the detritus of centuries of hidden items. Crab dies in the fire, but the trio save Malfoy and Goyle. The fire also destroys the diadem, conveniently. All around the battle is growing fiercer, and then the world explodes around them killing Fred Weasley. Chapter 32, The Elder Wand. The only way to end the battle is to end Voldemort, and that means ending Nagini. The trio race through various terrible skirmishes to the Shrieking Shack, where they witness Voldemort kill Snape in order, the Dark Lord presumes, to unlock the power of the Elder Wand. As his dying act, Snape gifts Harry a magical memory. Chapter 33, The Prince's Tale. Harry brings the memory to Dumbledore's pensive and dives in. He discovers that his mother, Lily, and Snape were friends in childhood, but they grew apart at school because of his embrace of the dark arts. Snape switches sides after Lily's death and promises Dumbledore to do everything he can to protect her son. He also protects Draco by killing Dumbledore in Draco's stead, a mercy killing, for Dumbledore was dying of a curse. Snape protected students at Hogwarts from the worst of the Caros. He even delivered Gryffindor's sword to the trio. Through it all, he was Dumbledore's most faithful servant, ever engaged in the most dangerous game of the double agent. Whew, it's 160-something pages of yeah. Harry Potter there. The, the end, the last day of this book is excruciatingly long. And given our number of, of episodes, I think if I went back and split them up again, I would maybe split them up differently. But there is essentially like a couple of main movements in this section of chapters. We get another Dumbledore download, this time from Aberforth on the history, the true history, not the Rita Skeeta version of what happened to Ariana. We get the first of this of this sort of two-part battle of Hogwarts with the killing of Fred Weasley in all of its horribleness. And then we get the death of Snape and his Snape download to Harry, passing on the memories of why he did what he did, who he is, and why he's there. And I just have to wonder if if any of that excuses his behavior, I don't know. Snape's yeah. a very complicated character. And at first this seems like this wipes him clean. Oh, all of his actions are explained by love. And yet he, 
is still gray in a lot of ways. Yeah, he he is a complex character. I also wonder if the author knew exactly where she was going when she introduced him at first because he is pretty awful. Obviously, in the first book, we are made to think he's the bad guy. A lot of the evidence points to him as a deflection away from Quirrell. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, through through the books, he holds grudges forever. He holds a grudge against all four of the Marauders and takes it out on Lupin, even though at the same time he also makes a potion for Lupin. Mm-hmm, um, but mm-hmm. he doesn't stop uh, them from trying to figure out if he's a werewolf or not, because he sets right. he sets that essay that hurts of Hermione figures it out, of course. He does like his professional duty, like to the letter as the potions master, but then totally throws Lupin under the bus at the first opportunity by like subbing in his class and being like, let's study werewolves. So let's go back uh, to the beginning of these chapters where we mm. had that Aberforth Dumbledore download. And Aberforth is a very jaded character. Oh, yeah. He tries convincing Harry to give up his mission. Hermione says, Dumbledore loved Harry. And Aberforth says, why didn't he tell him to hide then? Why didn't he say to him, take care of yourself? Here's how to survive. And then Harry says, because sometimes you've got to think about more than your own safety. Sometimes you've got to think about the greater good. Harry's understanding of the greater good is very different than the understanding that Dumbledore and Grindelwald had when they were his age mm-hmm. for them, the greater good at that point in their uh, stupid teenage years was <laughs> wizard kind ruling over muggle kind uh, for their greater, for the greater good of all, uh, which was really just an excuse for authoritarianism power and power. But what Harry says is the greater good is the sacrifice that's coming is him will being willing to lay down his life for his friends as Jesus says, greater love has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. More Gospel of John. We're on a I mean, Gospel of John thing today. It's just right there. And, and stay, <laughs> stay tuned for next time because we're going to go there. Yeah. Um, but so, so Harry has a very different understanding of the greater good. Mm-hmm. His greater good is more like Spock's understanding of the greater good in Star Trek II when Spock dies mm-hmm. saving the Enterprise and has this radiation overload. And that's where we get that beautiful sentiment in star trek that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one for and for spock that meant sacrificing himself to save his crew and we get the sense that aberforth dumbledore is still trapped in the past in a way he has not spoken his truth he has lived a life of hiding and shame and weird goat magic that maybe got him in trouble with the law, but I'm not really sure what kind of, anyway. Um, but he thinks that Albus, his brother was, was able to escape scot-free from all of this. You know, their sister is now dead and he's free to go off and change the world and be the greatest wizard of the times. And Harry reminds Aberforth, you know, he was never free in the cave when he was hallucinating on that potion. He thought he was watching Grindelwald hurting you and Ariana. It was torture to him. You'd see if you'd seen him then, you wouldn't say that he was free. Um, and so Aberforth, who is living for himself, giving up on this greater cause of justice, of of fighting for what is right, comes to blows with Harry essentially. And Harry says, you know, I. I've got to do this. I I have to sacrifice myself. And I don't know if I blame Aberforth. I imagine there's a lot of people out there who think this is too complex. It's too dangerous. 
go off and save yourself. And I'm going to go do the same thing. And yet if Harry had believed that, um, if Aberforth had believed that the whole world would be different, it would be living under Voldemort's power, but Aberforth keeps that tunnel open. There's a, a parallel between Dumbledore and Harry that we see with God and Jesus when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus mm. is praying, take this cup from me, but not what I want, what, but what you want, your will be done essentially. And in a similar way, Harry is saying the same thing. You know, I wish this had never happened, mm-hmm. but it has, and I'm going to see it through. I'm going to drink the cup that has been laid out for me. Um, not, and we get into trouble here when we think about the concept of the atonement, uh, when we think that Jesus needed to suffer and mm-hmm. die um, because God was wrathful and needed some sort of, of, of blood sacrifice. What Jesus is really saying, I think, in that moment in the garden is, I have come this far in my mission. If I abandon it now, it will all be for naught. I, I, have, I have lived in such solidarity with those who are being ground under the boot of oppression that if I abandon them now, if I went to save myself, then I could never look them in the face again. I'm going to continue to, to move forward on this path that I have chosen because that's my truth. That's what I have to do in order to, um, to be that, uh, that vessel of salvation. Um, and also again, knowing that that's not the end, that the, mm. that, that the death on the cross is an end, but not the end. In this, in these chapters, we see the, the depth and the, and the, length people are willing to go to stand up for what's right. Um, there's that beautiful moment I, I noticed in rereading um, between Minerva McGonagall and Pomona Sprout, where they just have this like look of grim understanding, knowing that they cannot hold off Voldemort forever, but they're going to do their ever loving best to keep the school secure in order for Harry to do his mission. We see Percy come back, apologize to his family and be willing to fight to the end with them on the side of what is right. We see all these people, all of the DA, all the secondary characters coming back together, being willing to fight until the end for what they believe in. And it's the kind of cowards that we know, the Slytherins who would, you know, hide off and and run away or try to be first on the way to escape um, that aren't willing to demonstrate that level of commitment for what is right. Not to throw all Slytherins under the bus, but come on, they're showing in the battle of Hogwarts was terrible. (laughs) pretty much non-existent i would say right i don't know they all leave hufflepuffs second only to gryffindor in number of people who remain behind just gonna Ah, say indeed named characters yes always repping my house yeah there you go (laughs) so let's let's continue uh on here we have the moment where harry goes to ravenclaw tower mcgonagall comes and confronts amicus caro and electo caro is is uh, unconscious on the ground and um she's already pressed her dark mark and and amicus schemes to pass off his sister's pressing of the dark mark uh saying oh you know a couple of kids more or less what's the difference 
because they know if 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 you didn't call Voldemort for a good reason, then he's going to take it out on you. And McGonagall says something so great. What's the difference? McGonagall says only the difference between truth and lies, courage and cowardice. And I love that line, especially in our world today, where we are being confronted by that those choices all the time in political campaigns, on social media, there is so much disinformation. There's so much to sift through to find that truth and, and really to find facts. Um, that, and, and so many of uh, so many powerful people in the world have decided that it's just easier to traffic in lies, and, uh, which is the coward's way out, because they aren't facing the truth with courage. And McGonagall says, no, this is where we stand. She makes that choice, as, as Dumbledore said, I don't know, in one of the movies or one of the books, uh, there will come a time when we must choose between what is easy and what is right. That those yeah, who a, remain yeah, and stand, yeah. end of book four, that's right, after Cedric died, yeah. um, when he chose what to do what is right not, and was not going to take the easy way out. McGonagall will never take the easy way out. She will be a true Gryffindor, brave until the end. And thankfully she survives the battle because she's amazing. Yeah. And then she goes on to um, be the matriarch of uh, Downton Abbey. So there you go. (laughs) She goes back in time. Back in time. (laughs) Settles herself as the Dowager Countess. Yes. Um, what is a weekend? <laughs> what is a weekend? Yes. She's so good. She's so um, good. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we're almost done here. Um, I, I did want to mention a couple more things. Uh-huh. First uh-huh. is we get another repetition of the theme about Harry needing help. Uh, the mm. DA wants to fight. Ron says they can mm-hmm. help find the Horcrux and Hermione agrees. And it says when Harry and when Harry looked unconvinced, Hermione says, you don't have to do everything alone, Harry. It's one more example of you. It's okay to ask for help, Harry. And to not be like Albus Dumbledore, keeping everything so close to your chest. Secrets, secrets and lies. Uh, And the other thing I wanted to point out was um, in the, uh, the beginning of the prince's tale, when Voldemort does his second magical megaphone, mm-hmm. you know, speech, he's manipulating Harry into thinking the battle is Harry's fault. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? He, yeah. Yeah. But no, yeah. it's your fault, Voldemort. But how often does our hero take, again, we've said this many times, take on um, blame that isn't his. It happens a lot where he, he doesn't want anybody's help, but then he takes on blame. That's not his either. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, those are a couple of the burdens that Harry bears throughout the series. And how like Voldemort to, to project onto him, Voldemort would be the one who would let others die for him in the way so that he can survive. That's not Harry. That's pure projection on his part. And yet because of Harry's, uh, very over responsible heart that he's got, he'll take that seriously and start to believe it himself even though it's absolutely not true yeah yeah and then when he sees the weasley family and their grief it hits him even harder this is all my fault yeah 
All right. So next time on the podcast, we'll be reading the final chapters of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, finishing off our four plus season trek through the Harry Potter books, reading chapters 34 through 36 in the epilogue. That's The Forest Again, King's Cross, The Flaw in the Plan, which is my favorite name of a chapter of all of the Harry Potter books, and epilogue 19 years later. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. I again apologize for the Scorpion King Moana mashup I did the other day. That was hilarious. <laughs> you, you can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book, and it's a story about a group of friends who traverse the world looking for unique and magical liquids. And as always, you can wow, find you both made of it us. sound really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> They've heard it before. I'm going to come up with a new one until I regret not doing that before. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. And now may you, when you are trapped in the hex of grief, remember that you are not alone. May you know that grief is love persevering, a reflection of the love Jesus has for us. May you find your way forward when wave upon wave threatens to drown you. May you in time leave the comforting fantasy and learn to speak your truth. And the blessing of God who created us and wept at the tomb of his friend and unites us beyond life be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. <laughs>